0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What's Good. Greg Meskel here with you. Joining me today, my good pleasure, my first ever interview with Olympic fencer Alex Masialis, two-time Olympian working on number three. Thanks for joining us.
1: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Alex, I was thinking about you in this interview and watching video of you uh, compete from past competitions, and I thought, well, if There's not a sport that seems better designed for social distancing. You're all covered up. The idea is to kind of get in and get out against your opponent. What's been the word around fencing as far as how competitions might resume given social distancing and everything else going on? Sure.
1: Um, As of right now, we still don't have a lot of information. Um, The International Fencing Federation, you know, is still trying to figure out, you know, how they need to plan their schedule around the next, the new Olympic schedule as well. And um, there are a lot of questions as to, you know, you know, our season last year was, this year was cut short. So how are they going to do like points for next season and how that will affect the Olympic rankings and stuff like that? So as far as competition is concerned, um, I don't think anyone's really thinking about competing until maybe at the earliest, if we're lucky, uh, November or something like that. Um, but it seems like, in uh, all parts of the world, people are starting to slowly be able to get back into training. And, you know, even if it's not serious training, or like you have to take extra precautions, you know, being in back, it, being able to go back to the fencing club is something that I think a lot of uh, our athletes are really missing. And luckily, at this point, you know, uh, things are opening up a little bit so that people can actually go and, you know, just kind of be in the environment that they're so used to be uh, being in.
0: Talking with athletes from a variety of sports, boxers, they can work the heavy bag on their own. They can spar volleyball athletes. They've set up things where they can kind of hit the ball to themselves and work underneath nets and that sort of thing. What what do your workouts look like when you can't have a person to go against?
1: Yeah, well, luckily uh, I live with my dad, so <laughs> who is also my coach. So, you know, I can take private lessons with him in the, in the backyard, you know. Um, since we're in San Francisco – we, it's not really a big backyard or really too much of a backyard. Uh, So we don't do a lot of footwork, but at least we can work on some hand actions and stuff like that. Um, And then other than that, it's more about keeping yourself in shape uh, than anything else. Um, For me, you know, I've kind of taken this opportunity to look at this a bit like the off season um, because we know we won't be able to go back and compete uh, anytime soon. But, that doesn't change the fact that I still need to be in some level of physical conditioning so that when I come back, you know, I'm not starting from negative. I'm starting from at least ground zero or, you know, hopefully a little bit more than that. Um, and especially for fencing, which is very, the muscles used are very specific. You know, you don't always hit those by doing normal body, you know, body weight workouts or home workouts. So, you know, in addition to all that stuff, I try and, you know, maybe try and, um, to focus on a little bit of the hand actions, working with my dad on stuff like that, um, because that's the stuff that I think will come back, though, no, the hardest, it'll take the longest time to really perfect that technique
0: uh, when I get back. What, what are some of the muscles or some of the things that you work on that the average person might not think to associate with your sport? Sure, I
1: mean, um, the things that I think people don't realize, is that even though we're a lot of you know lower body leg muscles um you know doing normal squats and stuff like that don't actually hit it because we're in a squatting position but like our legs are in a 90 degree angle um it really uh, hits a lot of like the adductors um and that's like something i always feel a lot of pain after i take a break from benzene and come back and you're constantly lunging constantly lunging you 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 feel great the first day, and then you wake up the next morning and your adductors are completely sore and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing here? So um, as lo- I'm trying to just make sure I-, I focus on, you know, adductors, hamstrings, glutes, you know, fencers have notoriously actually weak hamstrings. So this is actually a good opportunity to work on some of the stuff that I'm actually weaker in as well.
0: You mentioned uh, training in the backyard with your dad. And to give a little context for the average person, this isn't like taking their dad in the backyard to work on Olympic sport, your dad, an accomplished fencer, an Olympian in his own right. I wondered about that with you because as you mentioned, he's your coach. A lot of people in this pandemic environment have been back home with their parents and it's been a change of pace. They don't, spend that much time with their parents like they used to in high school and when they were younger, but you're around your dad all the time. (laughs) How do you navigate that kind of father son relationship where he's your dad, but he's also your coach?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I think my parents did a really good job from the very beginning at setting expectations. Um, from the very beginning, even before I started fencing, they were like, you know, if you ever want to start fencing, um, you have to remember that your dad's a coach on the strip but a father at home, you know, if you go to the club, he's going to treat you just like any other student, you know, maybe even work you harder, (laughs) who knows. Um, And, you know, I really took that to heart even from the very beginning. So, you know, even if he, uh, if I was, you know, he was making me do push-ups for goofing off and not paying attention during footwork and stuff. uh, I knew that wasn't my dad yelling at me. That was, you know, my coach yelling at me, just like he yells at other people when they're goofing off as well. And I think that's something we've done a really good job at uh, cultivating is that this, uh, this coach on the strip and father at home uh, relationship. Now, obviously, as we've gotten older, and as we've matured in our own rights, uh, especially after Rio, uh, and getting those two medals in Rio and sharing going through that experience with him, um, obviously, there are times where the lines are blurred, you know, Uh, but I think that's a good thing because now we're old enough and especially me, I'm old enough and mature enough to really, you know, digest that. And it doesn't have to be black and white all the time. As when I'm a kid, you know, it's so much easier to make it black and white. So you don't have to deal with the gray areas a little bit more, um, the tougher, but also more meaningful areas. Um, nowadays, you know, I get to experience them as a father at home, a coach on the strip, but also, you know, all the things in between.
0: And as you described it. You've been to enough Olympic Games to know that when you have that successful moment as an athlete, you're one of the few that has a parent right there. You know, so a lot of people, right, they see their parents up in the stands or they or they don't make the trip and they have to call them or FaceTime them afterwards. That is one of those lines blurring, I imagine, fun moments where it's like, oh, wow, this is cool. My dad's right here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's no one else I needed you know, to hear from more after I lost in the gold medal match. Right, um, you know, the moment you lose that that last touch, um, you you so you're so close to achieving this this goal, this dream of you um, yours. And you know, to hear my dad, you know, come up to me and just say it's okay, um, not as a coach, but just as a father. Um, that that was an extremely impactful moment for me and something I'll never forget.
0: You mentioned Rio and you had a lot of attention there after that epic comeback early on, on the way, right? People were so excited about that. And I'm sure you personally feel like you're riding this momentum and then, and then the end of it doesn't go the way you want to do or the way that you wanted it to go. How do you kind of reconcile those two things? People very excited for you and you feeling good and then not having the end result that you wanted.
1: Um, at the end of the day, um, you just got to take things in stride. Um, I, I, I realized that you know it's not always going to be your day. Uh, even though I was I was clearly having a pretty good day, you know, um, things don't fall in your favor all the time. Uh I think especially in fencing, it's hard for people to be consistently at the top every single every single tournament. Even the people who are ranked number 1 or when I was ranked number 1 like during Rio, that season I won a couple tournaments, but it's not like I'm always uh on the very top of that podium. Um Also, you know, you just gotta realize, take a step back and realize, you know, everything that this achievement still means to people. You know, bringing back the silver medal um, was historic for U.S. fencing, um, historic for you know my father's club, historic for me. Um, You know, if you can take a step back and you know just understand the gravity of the moment, you you can begin to realize you know this doesn't have to be a a really bitter memory yes it can be bittersweet. it can it can even be sweet but it doesn't have to be you know I got this close and um and I have nothing to show for it I'm extremely proud of what I was able to do and at the end of the day I realized you know uh in my comeback match against Avalon in the quarterfinals this is a guy I've never beaten before in a 15 touch match in an individual match um, and then to beat him in the way I did was a very was a big barrier and something that's you know doesn't happen often. But in the gold medal match, I lost to someone who I'd never lost to in 15 touch match before too. And it's just one of those moments where you know you can't win them all. But you know I I achieved, clearly achieved something great that day. Uh, I walk away you know with my head held up high, knowing what I achieved and you know taking that hopefully to Um, better my experience in Tokyo next year.
0: In a sport like fencing, and I'm sure you'd be the first to admit this is one of those sports that doesn't get the attention that those that take part in it think it deserves. And with that comes probably a role for a lot of the athletes to be part competitor and part advocate for the sport. So when, when you have to talk about you know the beauty of fencing and why it is you do it and why it's something people should check out what's your what's your elevator pitch when someone's like oh olympic fencer and you're like yeah it's what i do and this is why you should know about it
1: um depending on the age of the people you know you talk to uh it definitely goes different ways um when i talk to kids it's like you know who doesn't want to be told to hit someone else with another sword right look at the sword, right? How awesome is that? I get to go to, uh, to my job every day and poke people with sores. Um, but, you know, for me, fencing is just an extremely unique sport. Um, I think it's such a great combination of athleticism and your mental game that it, it it's kind of unparalleled in that aspect because I've seen great athletes come through fencing but not be able to do great things as a fencer because – you know, even though they're a great athlete, they don't have it all together mentally or they're not thinking two steps ahead. Um, you know, and this balance between it being a mental game and a physical game is something that really intrigues me, uh, as an athlete because um, you know, as I said, you can be a great athlete, you know, even when I turn like I go to the fencing club and I fence against the younger fencers, uh, if I turn my brain off and just like, you know, go with with my athleticism just trying to outspeed out uh, i strength them. You know, of course, I'm going to score a bunch of touches, but they're going to hit me way more than they should be. Um, and I think that's a good – uh, that just goes to show uh, how unique the sport is in that sense because you can never turn your brain off, not for a second. And uh, if you're not trying to think about what your opponent's doing or how to get around what your opponent's doing, uh, you're clearly going to have issues uh, and problems down the line.
0: Having never fenced before but having seen it at a few Olympic games from time to time – I was trying to envision what, what I thought a, a perfect performance might feel like from your perspective. And the first thing that came to mind, and this is, I'm, I'm dating myself here a bit, but those older Matrix movies with Keanu Reeves and the idea that, like, you're just not being hit by anything you don't want to be hit by, right? He's able to move around. In that case, he's dealing with bullets, right? But yeah. you, could, you could get the imagination. In your mind, when it's all working for you, you mentioned the mental and the physical as one. What does that feel like? Yeah, I mean, for me, when you're in the zone, you don't really think as
1: actually as much, like consciously at least. Um, you're so in tune with what's going on and how your body's moving, your body almost moves preemptively. Um, and it's really hard to explain, and I'm sure athletes in other sports obviously have the same kind of uh, physical and mental feeling as well, being in the zone. Uh, but fencing is extremely unique because, like, I'm thinking about, I'm trying to consciously think about what the opponent's doing, but my body's kind of reacting before I see it happen, or I know it's happening, you know? Um, And those are the moments where I really feel like I'm fencing at my greatest. Um, In the times where I've won, like matches by one touch, like 15-14 for the gold medal and stuff like that, um, or these these pivotal moments that are really important uh, in the middle of a bout, a lot of times if I'm really in the zone, um, someone will ask me, oh, like, how did that last touch go? Like, how'd you think about that? And I was like, and I, my first response usually is, I don't even remember what I did that last touch. You know, and you're so in the zone, you don't like remember what happens afterwards. And I think that's like the telltale sign of like, you know, you truly being one physically and mentally and in the zone. Um, and it's it's really hard to to explain because, you know, obviously, you clearly did something really great in that moment. But the fact that you can't really remember it because you know you're just that much in the zone is such a uh, it's a very weird
0: feeling. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine. But you're the first athlete I've heard describe this great performance where they almost can't remember it, minute by minute, or 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 move by move. It kind of just like you said, you kind of just take over, kind of just black out, and the thing happens uh, that that you want it to happen. I know that you've been. To these uh media summit type of events where you have to go through and it's kind of the car wash of being asked questions and you've had people ask you stuff after what what is one or two of the more bizarre questions you've been asked or just stuff where it's just kind of an oddball question has there been anything that stands out in your mind where people ask you something and it just is like you're way off on what on what is actually happening
1: (laughs) yeah um i'm sure i've had my fair share of uh interesting questions but usually they pertain there i don't know if i can give a specific example but it's mostly usually they're about like you know, fencing as a sport a generalization about about fencing like it um they they lead the question like oh you know people associate fencing with like nerds and stuff like that uh and being nerdy and you know those questions you know throw me off a little bit because i um a i don't think it's really like you you can make that association that it's just for one group of people and B, like what's wrong with being nerdy i went to stanford you know (laughs) we're nerd nation (laughs) um so of all the people that they're asking you know I, i may be the wrong person uh to answer or maybe the right person actually in that respect but i always i always respond the same way that you know fencing is such a very diverse demographic i mean on my team alone, just the four uh, the four people that I competed in the last two Olympics with me, Garrick Meinhardt, Race Bowden, um, Miles Chamley Watson. You know, we have people who are you know Race and Miles are both models. Garrick is uh, was an MBA student, got his MBA, and then now is going to med school. So and then there's me who I went to Stanford for engineering. So everyone has like a very different background, and I would never you know uh, you know say that. All of us are lumped into one group, you know. You no,
0: know, you bring up a good point. I hadn't. It's funny, I hadn't even thought of fencing as a as a nerdy sport, but I guess <laughs> that that thing is out there. Um, you're right. Stanford has has made a wonderful reputation on Nerd Nation, and uh, there are a lot of people that have done some great things. It's always interesting to talk to Stanford athletes because there's so much going on on the farm that. As great as your thing is that you did in fencing, there's someone else that very minute doing something else great that day at Stanford.
1: Absolutely. I mean, from the very beginning of my time at Stanford, I knew I was in over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to London 2012 as the youngest male athlete on Team USA. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, like, I, I obviously try to stay humble. I don't want to, you know, think too too much of it. But you know, I go onto to campus. I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I'm, I know this stands out right if people hear about this they'll you know they'll obviously it'll stand out but then you know you they had a like student athlete um, orientation and they announced a bunch of Olympians and I was like oh my gosh I'm standing here with Maggie Steffens who is the same class at me at Stanford but is consensus best water polo player in the world and has a gold medal, you know. What I just took 13th in the individual and fourth in team, you know, I, I can't even hold a you know, a candle to her. So, um, you know, getting on the farm and hearing about even these incoming freshmen who are Olympians and had medals and, you know, the amount of Olympians on campus, and this is not even to say the people who have done such great things academically, you know, this was just my first take, you know, in my first week at Stanford, what I, uh, I realized. And it was an extremely humbling moment for me and, you know, going further d- further and further down, you know, you meet so many people who are so great academically, who have a lot of, you know, very interesting extracurriculars that have nothing to do with sports, you know, that are either in the academic field or, you know, so uh, things that deal with social justice as well. Um, you know, it, it is extremely humbling, and that's that's one of the reasons why I really loved my time at Stanford. So you're constantly meeting people that you're kind of in awe of, even when you think, even when people think that they should be in awe of you. You know, uh, I've had friends tell me, you know, if, uh, I'll I'll be going on a rant about how someone else is like so great, and like how are you guys like so good at this? And like, dude, you were number one in the world at fencing, you know, like don't sell yourself short. Uh, and so it's a humbling experience, but also at least you, it's a self-affirming experience as well, because you know, you have landed amongst a group of people that, you know, that I also belong there as well.
0: You, you bring up a lot of great points there. And, you know, part of that Stanford culture, it, it bleeds into the Olympics and national teams too, where everyone is so competitive. It brings everyone's game up a bit. You, you talked about the diversity of your team. I was thinking back at previous Olympics on the women's side in fencing Uh, Ibtaj Muhammad and kind of her path and that and that being an example for others you mentioned social justice there's that's been so much in the news the last month now you know as we're as we're talking here at the end of June from your standpoint and and I know this can be kind of a, a touchy subject but just the onus on athletes to kind of be more than their sport is that something that you feel kind of kind of a responsibility to you know, to your point, right, speaking out about the diversity of not only your team, not just academically, but maybe race, where they're from, why has that been an important thing to you and your teammates? And why do you think it resonates with athletes across the country?
1: I think it resonates among athletes around the country, because, you know, when you're on the court, and um, when you're on the fencing strip, you know, your race shouldn't matter, you know, and um, if you're, you're the best fence in the world, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, if you can beat anyone, you can beat anyone. I think, you know, uh, that that's a really important thing. Also, as athletes, you know, we have, um, we do have this platform where people do look up to us, kids look up to you. And, um, you know, we, um, I think it's really important for us to take a stand when we believe that something is right. Um, I haven't always been at the forefront of taking, you know, strides to, you know, talk about these kinds of issues um, as I was growing up when I was getting younger, at least on social media. Um, But within the last month and seeing, you know, a lot of my teammates being being so strong and being outspoken about it. And then hearing even, you know, just the dialogue and trying to absorb all the information from all kinds of athletes, you know, Ipti, uh, Nzinga Prescott, you know, we, um, even Rayson Bowden you know, one of my very good teammates who took a knee at the Pan American Games. Um, you know, just hearing these stories and hearing, you know, this cry for just justice, I think is, is very important for people who have a voice to speak up because um, if there's no one else to speak up for these um, you know, discriminated communities. You know that they won't be able to hear, um, speak up for themselves. So I think, you know, especially now in this this period of time, it is really important for athletes, uh, even myself included, to speak out more and and be and just fight for justice. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're just we just all want to be treated equal. As an athlete, I've always wanted to be treated equal. I, you know, I've been cheated before by you know by well, you think you've been cheated by referees before you think you know um things are unfair and the thing that's the beauty of athletics is it should always be a fair playing field you know in the ideal scenario it's always a play a fair playing field and when those uh, when that happens um it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your background is if you're the best you're the best
0: You bring up some good points there, and you're right. A lot of the things you just described, that has helped generate some important conversations that have gone on at leadership, whether it's USOPC, among different sports, in in sports media, in media in general. So a lot of uh, key conversations happening right now, as you said, a lot lot of important dialogue, more to come. This is far from over as far as this thing will uh, continue. Conversations will continue as we work our way towards Tokyo and beyond As we close things out here, Alex, really appreciate you taking some time here. Kind of end on a lighter note in our What's Good interview series with three questions. They are, what's something you've done for yourself lately? What's something you've done for someone else lately? And then what's something, and even in these heavy times, what's something that you've kind of been able to escape to and laugh at? And so the first thing I'll start with is, what's something you've done for yourself lately?
1: Um. You know, I haven't really done all that much in general. <laughs> um, the, I guess the one thing I've done for myself is, you know, I've grown out my hair as long as possible. I, you know, e- even though I've had offers for, you know, family to cut my hair, um, this is the one opportunity I've always wanted to see how I could grow, how long I could grow my hair out. So, you know, right now I'm getting pretty, pretty long, but um, still got a ways to go before I get anywhere uh, significant. But I think that's, that's something i'm doing for myself that i think is a little funny um something i've done for others um you know i i just try and do uh, stuff for my parents whenever i can um right now because i live next door to them um i i try to be the one going to the market markets more and you know just trying to limit their exposure to the outside world as much, even as safe as San Francisco is, um, you can't ever be, you know, too safe in these times. So uh, whenever I can reduce the risk for others, um, whether it's friends or family, um, I know I'm of good health. Uh, I have a lot of time on my hands because, you know, my training has been limited. So, um, you know, I try, I, if people need things, I, I just try and be the one, uh, who's available to help people pick up groceries and just anything menial, stuff like that. And then um, the last question was, so "Oh, last thing that made me laugh." Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed Jimmy O Yang's up on Amazon <laughs> Prime. Um, you know, he talks about this Asian American his uh, experience, and you know. Even though I'm half, I'm uh, I'm only half. Um, it really I do resonate with a lot of things he talks about, and he is, I think is absolutely hilarious too. So I love Jimmy O Yang. <laughs> He
0: he stole every scene he was in in Silicon Valley. Right? Absolutely. That I I fell in love with him the second I, I started watching Silicon Valley. And uh, he has a small role too, I think, in that new Space Force show on Netflix. I've, yeah, I've watched does. all of it. Though. I've seen a couple of episodes, but uh, very very funny guy. Uh, that's excellent. I'm also jealous of your hair. You know, I thought, I thought w- the one advantage I've had during quarantine is for someone who cuts their own hair, it's been perfect. I just, I can, I can do whatever I want, but, uh, like the look you're going for, Alex, excited to see you, uh, back on the strip in Tokyo next summer and best of luck with everything else going forward. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.